And Father, I pray that as we have a few minutes to study your word in chapter 45, that you would just bless this time. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So thank you for allowing me to do that. But in chapter 45, you recall if you were here last week, that here is Isaiah, that he is calling uh, the, the people back, that is the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, back to himself. You know that they were involved in idol worship. And Isaiah, as we read in verse 1, when we opened up this magnificent book, the book of Isaiah, that Isaiah ministered during the reign that would begin in the reign of Uzziah and then Jotham and then Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, we know from chapter 6 that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that uh, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then the call came to Isaiah as the Lord would say, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, send me. So he was called to ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah, of course, if you remember from our previous study, that he was a good king. He, he made Judah strong uh, militarily, economically, agriculturally. Uh, he was a good, solid king. And then as Isaiah starts his ministry, later on would come Ahaz on the scene. And during the reign of Ahaz, who was a terrible king, he reigned for 16 years, that the nation was plundered by the house of Israel and by the Philistines and by the, the enemies around Judah. And, and we know that they were going through difficult times because Ahaz was one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. They were involved in every kind of idol worship and occultic kind of practices. They were ones that they were sacrificing their own children on the arms of Moloch in the Gehenna Valley. When we take our trips to Israel, we show you where that is, the Gehenna Valley, where all of that took place, the, the garbage heap, where they sacrificed their own children. Well, after Ahaz came Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good king, and he brought revival to the land. But after uh, Hezekiah, as you recall in Isaiah chapter 39, that Hezekiah, he received some uh, company from these ambassadors from a far away land uh, that was Babylon. At that time, Hezekiah had just experienced uh, a healing uh, that uh, had taken place. And also the Assyrians, who were the powerful nation, the most powerful empire at that time, uh, had taken the ten northern tribes of Israel off into captivity because of their idol worship, came and surrounded Jerusalem. And you recall that the Lord would send an angel to destroy the armies of the Assyrians. So here come these ambassadors from this little known empire called Babylon. It's about 705 BC, a hundred years before the Babylonians would be the world power and, and come and, and begin to take Judah off into captivity. But the prophecy was given to Hezekiah that Hezekiah, Babylon is going to come and carry your choice men away into captivity and also take the treasuries from the house of the Lord away. So he receives that about 705 B.C. And then about 605 B.C. is when uh, Judah would go into captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah is more specific about that. But Isaiah, he would end his reign uh, uh, or his ministry when Manasseh was reigning, the son of Hezekiah. Manasseh reigned longer than any other king in Judah, and he was the worst king that ever came on the scene in Judah. He plunged the nation deep into idol worship. He was worse than Ahaz. 
He closed off the temple, filled it with idols. And he's the one, it is believed by tradition, that when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, that it talks about there in the hall of faith that those who were persecuted and sawn in half. It is believed that Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh. And because of the sins of Manasseh, the Lord said that you're going to go off into captivity. So what we've been reading about is here's the Lord at this time, 100 years before that happens, that he is saying to Judah, turn back to me, that I love you. And we really see the heart of the Lord as he's calling them to himself, turn away from these idols that you are worshiping because these idols are not going to help you. They are worthless. And we know that as the Lord is calling them to himself, that he is saying to God's people that I have called you by my name. You are mine. I have redeemed you. And he says that you're precious in my sight and I have loved you. I love you. And turn to me. And over and over again, as we have seen, that the Lord has said, I am the Lord. There is no other. I'm your creator. And as there was that prophecy that we have seen that, hey, you're going to go off into captivity, he didn't leave them without any hope. He told them his heart concerning them. And at the end of chapter 44, we saw that an incredible prophecy was given 170 years before it happened. Let me read the end of chapter 44 and verse 27 and move into chapter 45. That who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In chapter 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and lose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And as we read this, it's speaking 170 years before it even happens that there's going to be a time where this individual named Cyrus is going to come on the scene and he's going to order Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt. And we know that, uh, that it would take place in 536 B.C. They go off into captivity, the first wave, Daniel, and the choice men of Judah go off into captivity, Daniel, the book of Daniel. He ends up serving in the palace of, of Babylon and serving Nebuchadnezzar. Then in 597 B.C., the second wave of captivity by the Babylonians. And Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, is taken off into captivity into Babylon. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in a third time and destroys Solomon's temple and destroys Jerusalem. And, and we know that Jeremiah is in Jerusalem during that time. Speaking about the end of summer, then in the book of Jeremiah, I think one of the saddest verses in all of the Bibles is when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, summer's over. Harvest is in. And we're not saved. And as I think about that, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and I know that one day the Lord's going to come for his church and he's going to come for the harvest. And, and there are going to be those going, summer's over. Harvest is in. And we're not saved. Oh, they'll have opportunity as the tribulation period would then come. It's a lesson for another time. When we get done with Isaiah, we'll go through the book of, of Revelation and talk about those things. 
But we want to be praying for those that we love and care about, that they would come to Christ now. Because there's a harvest, a gathering that the Lord is going to, to bring as he's going to bring us home to be with him. So here in 536 B.C., the Medes and the Persian, as we ended last week, of course, would take Babylon. And it's amazing. Here it is 170 years before it is prophesied. What happened was that Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built to the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. So he actually made the decree that they could go back and rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, would do that in 536 B.C. But it's interesting how it is that Cyrus took the city. Here he is being named before he was even born. He's my servant. He is uh, the one that I'm going to use to perform all of this. And the one who subdued nations. The one uh, that to open before him, verse 1 of chapter 45, the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And he says, I will go before you to make the crooked places straight. And I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of, of iron. This is what happened. As there in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, as I ended last week, told you that he's having a party for thousands of his lords. The Lord writes a message behind him, mini, mini, tekel, you farces. Daniel comes in, an elderly man who's been in captivity for, for 80 years, and he says, this is the interpretation of the writing, Belshazzar, that you have been found wanting, um, been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and you've come up short this very night that you are going to be killed and your kingdom's going to be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. And as all that's going on, Cyrus is outside those double gates. Now, Babylon was a massive city, and there are some uh, historians and some commentators that suggest that the walls around Babylon were 350 feet high. It's huge walls. And six chariots could race on top of it. They had towers, and then they had an inner wall. And the Euphrates River ran under the walls of the city. And then there was kind of a moat, and then there was an inner wall. And what happened was Cyrus, with this great engineering feat, diverted the flow of the Euphrates River so where it flowed you know, away from the city walls. And the soldiers just walked right underneath the city walls, they came to the inner walls and the gates were open. Just as it was prophesied 170 years before it happened. And they went in and they took the city. Um, and then uh, Babylon would fall to the Medes and Persians. But let's continue in verse 3. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. That you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me, and I will gird you through, uh, though you have not known me. So in these, as you go to Ezra chapter 1, you see that Cyrus gave this decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem again to rebuild the temple. You can read it as he gave that decree in chapter 1. That Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, makes a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I wonder if we're going to see Cyrus in heaven. 
uh, you read this and he says, the God of heaven has commanded me to do this. So God here calls him his shepherd, his servant here. They would come back. They would rebuild the temple eventually. And then in verse 6, that they may know him from the rising of the sun to its setting. That there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So God's purposes are accomplished and God is sovereign. And he sits on the throne. Now that brings me great comfort. And as we continue reading in verse 8, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness bring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. And woe to him who strives with his maker. And let the posture strive with the postures of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? And woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? It's foolish is what we're being told to strive against God. And we're being told over and over again, and will continue to be told in Isaiah, that the Lord says that I am the creator. And I created you. And as this time, 2,700 years ago, we saw in chapter 26 that, again, that what was being said in the land is very much what is being said even today as the one who, who looks at uh, the potter, the one who is the creator, and begin to question what he has created, what he has done. And it shall be said in that day in chapter 25, actually, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. And, and he will uh, bring us salvation. And then it goes on to say that as we read it here, that actually is in chapter 29, excuse me, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? We hear so much today about identity, about gender identity and sexual identity and and. All these things that are very prevalent in our culture today that we can bombard it with. And here the same thing was happening in Isaiah's day. There are those who are saying, well, God didn't really make me. He didn't create me. You know, shall your handiwork say to him who has no hands, you know, uh, what are you making? You know, you have no understanding. And I hope that you understand that he is the wonderful creator who created you. And even as we saw in uh, chapter 43, he says, I have created you for my glory. as I have formed you for my purposes. Revelation chapter 4, that we see that the song of the, the angelic beings around the throne of God are saying that you have created us for your purposes, Lord. For, for your purposes, your glory. Even as Travis was up here reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Listen, he made you. He knew all about you before the world was ever formed. And he didn't make any mistakes. 
And he knew that you would be here tonight. And he says to you that I love you. And I have redeemed you. And you are precious in my sight. Just as he said 2,700 years ago to his people. He says to you today. And he says that I want to use you for my purposes. Not so that we live for ourselves or for our own glory. But for his glory. And the life that says, Lord, you made me to be here at this time. For such a time as this, for your purposes, and I'm going to trust in you because you're the wonderful creator. You're the master potter, potter that's going to mold me and shape me, and I'm just going to trust in you. And Lord, my identity is in Christ who went to the cross and died for me and saved me and redeemed me. And now I have the hope of heaven and I have a relationship with you, Father. Please, Understand that your creator knew all about you before you were even born. And you're no mistake. You're not something that the Lord looks and says, ooh, I'm, you know, what are you all about? He knows everything about you and he loves you. And he, he wants to redeem you if you haven't come to him. And he wants to make your life count. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. And his hands, what he wants to do with you is so incredible to make you a beautiful vessel for him. Well, in verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I've made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretch out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised them up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Again, talking about Cyrus, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So God will raise up Cyrus and Jerusalem will eventually be rebuilt and that proclamation that is given. And then in verse 11, though, I, I like, uh, what it says that ask me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands you command me you wondering what the Lord has for you will you go and ask him go and ask him he's saying to his people will you come and ask of me you remember chapter 30? He said, Woe to the rebellious children of Israel, for you, for you seek counsel, but, but not of me. You're going to the world, and you're going to Egypt, and Egypt isn't going to help you. But come to me. He calls them to himself. Return to me and ask me. But then he says, You would not come. And the invitation is given once more to come and ask me, because I have wonderful things to declare. He has said, I, I know the future. Uh, I declared them before they even happen. Uh, I've redeemed you. You're precious. I'm, I'm the creator who wants to, to do a marvelous work in making you a beautiful vessel, useful for me, for my glory, and for my purposes. You are my workmanship, poem in the Greek, which means that you are my uh, work of art, my, my poem. God wants to do so much. So you say, I don't know what the Lord wants from me. Will you go and ask him? This weekend, grab a pad and pencil. Take your Bible. Go for a walk. Go find a quiet place. 
and say, Lord, what is it that you have for me? I know this is what they say and this is what the world says I should do, but what is it that you have for me? Go and ask him and allow him day by day to do that marvelous work and speak to your heart as you just trust in him and as you're walking with him. You know, come and ask me. They were coming and and they would be critical, skeptically. Don't do that. Say, Lord, I know you want the very best for me. You love me because you proved your love by sending your son to go to the cross for me. And if you love me then, you love me now. And you're going to do the very best in my life. I'm just going to come and ask for you to guide me and direct me. And he does want to do that. Isn't that marvelous? He wants to direct and guide our lives and do such a marvelous work if we would just go to him, seek counsel of him, wait on him. Waiting on him is not always easy, but he promises that, that we will hear from him. And then in verse 14, thus says the Lord, the, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you and they will make supplications to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. So here, the nations will serve the Lord. It's being spoken of, even the nations that have come against Israel. And in the millennium, uh, we know that the nations, the Old Testament says, are going to bring gifts to the Lord. They'll, they'll recognize that there is only one God. There is no other God. That is what he is claiming here. Let's continue reading in verse 15. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and, and also disgrace all of them. They shall go to, into confusion together who are makers of idols. So again, he's talking about those who are turning to other gods. There is no other God. And they will be ashamed. Those who are worshiping other gods. And we go on in verse 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall uh, not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. And in verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. There is no other God. And I'm the creator. He's saying that over and over to them. Why? Because they were given their hearts and their time and their worship and their devotion to idols. And he's reminding them that those idols, they're not going to be sitting on the throne. Those idols, they're not sovereign. Those idols, they can't declare the future like I can. Every dot and tittle knowing that what the Bible says concerning prophecy is going to come to pass. Those idols are going to be a great burden to you as we get into the next chapter as we're going to see. And, and, and we know that uh, the foolishness of idol worship is being emphasized here when the Lord says, I am the one that is the true God. I am the true God. And as verse 17 we read, those who look to the Lord will not be ashamed. Those who look to the Lord, listen, listen, 
will not be ashamed. When we go stand before the Lord, you are not going to say, man, I wish I would have partied more. I wish I would have gone out drinking with my buddies more. I wish I would have given more attention to the world. You're not going to be saying that. But you're going to be in his glory, and it's going to be so wonderful. And the one who is able to keep you from stumbling is going to present you before his presence with exceeding joy. And one day we're going to stand before our Lord, those of us who are in Christ, and we are to invest in the things of the kingdom now. Oh, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. But there are rewards to be given to us. And that's why Jesus gave that parable of the mina and the talents that, that uh, there's a ruler, uh, a nobleman that went to a far country to receive a kingdom. And he gave and entrusted to his servants a mina and talents. And then he came back and they were to give an account for it. And those who invested for the master were told, well done and good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. Come enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's going to be us. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with being a light to others. And may we be a good steward of that because we are going to stand, all of us, before the Bama reward seat of Jesus Christ to be rewarded for what we have done for Christ in this life. It's not talking about salvation. We can't earn salvation. But with that said, all of our works will be tried by fire. And how I desire to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You're going to rule over ten cities and five cities and two cities. And so may we keep priority the Lord. Keep priority him. And invest in the kingdom because everything of this world is going to go away. And live for him. And we who believe in him, we're not going to be ashamed. You remember in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 that the Lord says that he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed of us. So the question is, am I ashamed of him? I don't know what is going on, a whistle or something. <laughs> are we ashamed of him? Are we afraid to tell people we're a Christian, to serve him? Are we ones that, that we don't want to mention it because uh, we want people to like us? Don't be ashamed of him because he's not ashamed of you. And as we stand before him, we will not be ashamed. But, I, you know, I read verse 18, and he's the creator who formed heaven and earth. I found this article. This is crazy. This came out two years ago, September 2016. Bank of America thinks there's a 50% chance we live in a matrix. This is true. Analysts at Bank of America have reportedly suggested there is a 20 to 50% chance our world is a matrix-style virtual reality and everything we experience is just a simulation. So what the article goes on to say, the report which was issued to clients also implies even if our world was an illusion, we would never know about it. Bank of America Merle Lynch backs up the claims by citing comments from, listen, leading philosophers, scientists, and other thinkers. 
It is conceivable that with advancements in artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and computing power, members of future civilizations could have decided to run a simulation of their ancestors, the report says. So in April 2016, all these supposedly, you know, leaders of science and philosophers and researchers, they gathered at the American Museum of Natural History to debate the notion. So what they're saying is that there's a 50% chance that there's some advanced intelligent civilization out there that we're just all a part of this matrix, this like video, right? This video uh, simulation that there's nothing that we can do about it. We're all part of that. This is leaders of, you know, Bank of America having a debate about this 50% chance. And I think how sad. Even as Roman says that professing to be wise, they're fools. And I think when you don't believe in the Lord, the stupidest things that you will believe, and this is one of them, to really think that there's maybe 50% chance that there's an intelligent civilization out there that we're just all part of their video game and we're in this matrix. And I think how sad that they don't understand that there's a God who created this world and created them and sent his son to die for them. And I pray for you and for me that we would always give that message to the world that comes up with the craziest ideas of where they come from. And we came from a product of monkeys and, you know, that intelligent, you know, uh, aliens came and, and, you know, we're a civilization from them. All these wild ideas when we have this book given to us and the Lord is saying, ask Come and ask me. And I pray that we would be ones that we would give truth to others. To tell them there's a God who created you and loves you. Sent his son to die for you. And has a wonderful plan for you. So Father, we thank you. So much here in this chapter we went over. And so Lord, we know that we who believe in you. And Lord, we know that we will not be ashamed. And so, Lord, I pray that we would never be ashamed of you, to declare you and your truth, to be a light for you. And Father, I pray that we would rejoice knowing that you are the creator who created us and loves us. That we're not some matrix that happened and we would never know or just a product of chance through evolutionary processes over billions of years. You knew all about us before you even made the world. You knew all about us. You knew when we would be born. You knew the difficulties and the trials and the hurts. And you're a loving father that declares to your people that I love you. I sent my son to die for you. I created you. And I have such a wonderful plan for you. Come and ask. Ask me. Trust in me. And I pray that we would leave this place just rejoicing in that truth. That we would humble ourselves before you give thanks to you 
And I pray if there's anyone here that maybe you've never made a decision for Jesus, that he is your Savior. There's none other. He is Lord. And he came and he went to the cross because of his love for you. So that you can be forgiven. And on that cross he cried out, it is finished that I've done the work and paid the price for forgiveness of sin, for salvation. And he says, come to me. The invitation is always come to drink of the living waters. To receive forgiveness. To know that you have the hope of heaven and that he wants to make your life count even now. To give you a new beginning as you come to him and surrender to him. You can do that right now. If you've never done that, because see, a church won't save you or going to a Bible study or trying to be a good person. But it's coming and recognizing your need for him, the Savior of the world, to be forgiven. If you've never done that, will you do that right now? You can come and say, Jesus, I come to you just as I am, a sinner. I confess it, and I ask that you would forgive me. I believe that you died on that cross for me. You were put into a grave and you rose again after three days. You're alive. Your word is speaking to me. The Spirit is testifying to me. You're drawing me to you. So, Lord, forgive me. And Jesus, be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you. And I want to make my life count for you. Thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And listen, if if anybody prayed that prayer, we're going to close here in just a minute. We have a ministry team up front and come up and receive prayer. Lord, for all of us, that we would get out of this place just thanking you for the truth declared to us and your heart towards us of your love and desire to do a marvelous work in our lives. May we live for you. Because we are created for your glory, for your good pleasures, to be your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So I thank you for that. Bless everyone this weekend. For those who will be traveling and gone, we just pray you bless their time and keep them safe. Take us all home safely tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.